Welcome to Southern Discomfort. This is one of the most unique podcasts on the internet. Southern tales of the weird, wild, mysterious, unusual, voodoo, Voodoo. cryptids, hauntings. Are you intrigued yet? This is Southern Discomfort. Southern Discomfort. And now, your hosts, April and Christine. Hey everybody, welcome back. And if you're new, then welcome. Yeah. So, y'all ready? Y'all ready to get uncomfortable tonight? Let's get uncomfortable. Definitely ready. But before we get started. Yeah, so let's remind everybody um, of our social channels. Uh, Twitter, uh, we're so disco PC. Instagram, Southern Discomfort PC, Facebook, Southern Discomfort Podcast, and YouTube, Southern Discomfort Podcast. Be sure to like, subscribe, hit the bell, uh, comment if you have a story you want to hear. Or you can also email us at Southern Discomfort Podcast at gmail.com. And now that that's out of the way, let's. What's our drink du jour? We have guava jelly sour ale. It's ale with guava. It is from Chandelier Island Brewery. Oh, man, I was worried about brewing (laughs) in a screwed up island. So, anyway, it's uh, (laughs) Gulf Gulf Sour Series. And I already had one, but let's crack this one open. It's really good. It is sweet, and it has a little bit of tart in it, and it has hints of pear, banana, and pineapple. It's really good. It, it sounds really good. Yes, it is. So this Gulf South series loaded with obnoxious amounts of guava, complemented by a tart and sweet finish. It's smooth. Very nice. I love it. Very nice. <laughs> Very nice. So that um so that's Gulfport. And tonight our story is, takes place forty one miles off the coast of Louisiana. And also, we didn't plan this, but try not to give too much away before I get into it into it, but this is um this is the coming up on the anniversary. Oh, you know what? It it absolutely is in like two days. Yeah. So what are we talking about tonight? We're talking about Deepwater Horizon. So on April 20th, 2010, 41 miles off the coast of Louisiana, the unthinkable happened. Like the absolute worst nightmare for anything really, but especially offshore drilling. And this happened when a surge of methane gas, known as a kick, sparked an explosion aboard the Deepwater Horizon rig, causing the largest marine oil spill in history, injuring 17 and killing 11 men. 36 hours later, 36 hours later, the Deepwater Horizon sank on the 22nd of April in 2010. So, um, I'm sure most everybody listened. This 
everybody worldwide knew about this. I remember hearing about this every day for 87 days. Well, even past that, but that's how long it took for them to actually cap it off when it happened. Well, and, you know, if if mo- if people were not familiar with it when it happened, they I'm sure they've seen the the movie, the Mark Wahlberg movie, um, its namesake. Right. And, you know, I've heard people who are really close in this industry um, but had been critical about it, but I actually thought it was a really good movie. Yeah, I mean, I thought I thought it was really well done, but I can also understand, you know, if there were people who felt like it was not, you know, as much true to life. I think that happens any time you try to translate something like this disaster to the big screen. Yeah. So it's certainly understandable. Absolutely, I did think about that too while I was researching. I thought, well, I wonder what the family feels like when they, if they did watch that movie, what they felt like. Um, watching their that their story being played out, but I anytime like I feel like it brings any emotion out of me because that, that's hard to do. I feel like I've never done it, but I feel like that's kind of hard to do. But certainly, I did go back and watch it before this. Um, after I'd already watched it when it came out, and it is different seeing it through the lens of knowing more about it. So, anyway. I enjoyed it. Yeah. So, um, the, the, there's, so we're talking about Deepwater Horizon explosion, but the, the actual well was the Macondo well. And it was nicknamed the well from hell because all the shortcuts and all the accidents that had happened on it. But, um, this was in the Mississippi Canyon. And I just wanted to real quick talk about, talk about oil. So, because I found this fascinating, um, for those of you who don't know, dinosaur remains don't turn into oil. So, <laughs> so you know, for anybody who's yeah, wondering, and that that I can put myself in that basket, I guess, because I've always heard of that. I never ever thought about actually where oil came from. In, in, no, and not me either. So, yes. I, I I think it helped me and everybody else to hear more about it right so it's microorganisms every drop of water in the oceans contain more than one million microorganisms there's an abundance of these in the warm waters of the gulf and which has plenty of nutrients for them to thrive so they die they accumulate at the sea bottom and they actually accumulate faster than they can decay it's um there's a name for it it's actually called marine snow and they get compressed by sediments pouring in from the rivers. And then this gets pressed deep into the earth. That's pressure that the pressure is coming up from the core, like the heat and such. And so basically they're being squeezed from both sides. And then I'm talking about over like time, you know, time, like years and years and years. But anyway, all the squeezing and the pressure, this turns and um, what, what the remains, which is what's left, which is crude oil, natural gas and methane. Um, so it's actually composed of one carbon atom surrounded by four hydrogen atoms. And you've probably heard the term hydrocarbon. Um, they're light and they rise to the top like bubbles through the cracks. And every year, 500,000 to 1.5 million barrels worth of oil and natural gas seek into the Gulf of Mexico. So, so what happens? Yeah. So what happens is they make these, um, 
all this oil and gas or whatever, they make their way to the surface. They, they rise like bubbles. They get trapped in these compacted salt deformations, which are inverted cups. They're salt domes. They collect and they form these reservoirs of oil and gas. And in the Gulf of Mexico, they have so many salt domes and are basically cups of oil. So that's where they get trapped and then they just accumulate and accumulate. Otherwise, it's like, literally like a, like it, it's literally like, is it shaped like that? Is, is that it, why it's called? An inverted cup. So that's how when they're rising to the top, oh, it just, dumb. Okay. yeah, yeah. I'm dumb. I no, got gotcha. Yeah. Well, no, it might be the way I explained it. So, yeah, so just captured in this, like these bubbles rise into the top, you know, from the water. It gets captured in that little dome shape and that, and they just accumulate. And that's where they're. Mm, that's, in Terrasante. Right. So these as are, Alex would say. Right. So they're these reservoirs. And that's in, you know, otherwise they would just rise up to the top and wouldn't be collected. You know, they would go here and there or whatever. So it's the, it's this collection of oil that, um, is what they're looking for, basically, which is what I'm getting at. So hydrophones are the sensitive equipment that can interpret sound waves, and this determines where these salt domes are and basically essentially where these oil reservoirs are. Um, and so earlier versions of this technology was used in World War One to triangulate the enemy's position. And so in 2003, a sound shadow was located 41 miles off the southeast coast of Louisiana in the middle of the Mississippi Canyon. And this was interesting because the Mississippi Canyon is actually a five-mile-wide, 75-mile-long ravine that runs along the, um, the seafloor. BP in 2008 leased the rights from the federal government to drill Block 252 of the Mississippi Canyon. And anything 200 miles along the coast, off the coast, belongs to the federal government. So that's why they had to lease it from the federal government. Um, they outbid five other companies with a price tag of $34 million just for the rights. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's all. That's it. They came in under. <laughs> in, in, in this industry... They um they name their oil prospects in code. They name them code names for secrecy. So BP had a United Way fundraising contest to name this prospect, and a an BP employee came up with the name Macondo. This was named after a fictional town in One Hundred Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. This is if. If you believe in omens and foreshadowing, this is very interesting. Listen up. So the story goes, it's a city that saw, starts off small in a jungle, and then it grows into this, um, this nice progressive place. But then the citizens get greedy, and they take moral shortcuts, and they fall prey to the plagues and wars, and then finally it's blown off the face of the earth by an explosive windstorm. And then the citizens... They were they're forewarned of the tragedy in writing, but it's in a language that they don't understand until finally it's too late. So, yeah, if that's not foreshadowing. I don't know what would be. So I'll just leave that there, as they say. So, so for their Macondo um, prospect, BP chose the Transocean Marianas, which is a well then was a twenty four year old semi submersible platform. And this was a drilling unit. It was capable of operating in harsh environments and water in depths up to 7,000 feet. 
this was birthed in the Mitsubishi shipyard in Hiroshima. For the Macondo Prospect, BP chose the Transocean Marianas, which was a 24-year-old semi-submersible platform drilling unit capable of operating in harsh environments and water depths up to 7,000 feet. Birthed in the Mitsubishi shipyard in Hiroshima, Japan, 1979. And the Marianas was also named by a contest that they had, and this was named for the Marianas Trench. So, BP estimated that the project would take only 77 days at an estimated cost of $91 million. BP's costs were half a million dollars a day for the Ringleys and half a million dollars per day for the consumption of fuel, helicopter flights, supplies, tractor services, food, so each day of drilling costs BP a minimum of $1 million. That's $40,000 every day or every hour. And then that's day and night, seven days a week, as long as it was up and running. On October 6th, Marianas arrived at Macondo. And October 7th, the work began. They wanted to complete the well in 52 days. They wanted to come in, you know, under budget and under schedule, and that would be a savings of more than $20 million. So these rigs and certainly the Marianas and, of course, the Deepwater Horizon, they are equipped with a BOP, which is a blowout preventer. And real quick, I'm just going to go through all this because it will be important later. Yeah. It's, um, it is a very important structure on the rig. It's used in case of emergency. This will shut the well and sever its connection to the rig. And this they can do all this with the push of a button. At um, 15 million, it's, well, it's a $15 million apparatus. It has valves installed at the top of the wellhead and at the seafloor. And this controls the cement and drilling fluids into the well um, and then oil and gas out of the well. But... Um, the most powerful components of the BOP are the rams. So in case of emergency, these rams can clamp down and close off the hole until you could get everything under control. But if things get worse, then they have blind shear rams, which are nicknamed pinchers, and they can cut through the drill pipe, sever the BOP, seal the well, and then allow the upper part of the rig to like move away from safety to safety. So Marianas hit an unexpected air pocket, and it began to rise from the surface. And on this, on the Marianas, the BOP malfunctioned. They had to stop drilling and disconnect for repairs. And remember, it cost them millions of dollars, well, a million dollars a day. Um, that's if they were running. So... If they're not, then yeah. So they the fifty two day schedule was not happening. That was a that was no bueno. That was a no go. So this would take weeks, um, to, weeks to months to repair. Then, as if that wasn't bad enough, Hurricane Ida came straight for Macondo. They had to pull the crew off and ride out the hurricane. Um, when they returned to inspect, um, you know, first glance, everything looked okay. But then when they um, turned everything on, started running it, they had severe electrical issues. Um, the rig wiring was extensively damaged. So they had to unmoor the rig and send, send it in for repairs. Um, and a month was lost at that point. 
and that's never good. No, lanes and never damaged. No. So the Marianas missed every deadline, and then at this point, the BOP breakdown and the hurricane. So they had only completed a fourth of the well that they had, and they had used up the budget. So on April, um, early April of 2010, BP sent the Deepwater Horizon to finish the project. So that's what happened. So they, the Marianas, start off this this. I never knew about this. We just hear about the Deepwater Horizon, but it actually began with the Marianas, but Deepwater Horizon came in to to um, finish up the job. So the Deepwater Horizon was a rig that was owned and operated by Transocean and leased by the oil company BP. It was situated um, in the Macondo Oil Prospect in the Mississippi Canyon. Um, she was at Ultra Water ultra deep water semi-submersible offshore drilling rig it was um was built in 2001 so by this time it was nine years old and um it was birthed in south korea by hyundai heavy industries and so it was actually commissioned by r&b falcon but um later that became an asset of transocean and then on in september 2009 it, she, it had drilled the deepest oil well in history at a vertical depth of 30,050 feet. That's so deep. That's that's huge. So it, And that set a record, didn't it? Yes, it did. So th- she had a deck nearly as big as a football field, a 25-story derrick flanked by two cranes, and then below the deck were two more floors. This included quarters for up to 146 people. Each room had its own bathroom and satellite television. There was a gym, a sauna, and a movie theater. Housekeepers cleaned the crew rooms and did their laundry. They called it a, a floating Hilton. So, I wonder if they did that for the, if that was mainly for the, um, the company employee, like the, like the BP employees, or if this was for the entire crew, because you know my husband, well. Most people don't know this, but my husband worked in the offshore oil industry for many years, and I've never heard him say that the <laughs> that the living conditions were anything like that. I don't know. That's free. They just had you know racks and yeah. common areas. That's what I thought. I came across yeah. this. I don't know. Maybe somebody can fact check me, but. No, no, no. I just am curious to know. I'll have to ask him um, if he ever yeah. heard that about deep water. And you're right. Maybe it was just for the VIPs. So. That's what I'm wondering if it was for the executives um, only. But anyway, I digress. Go Carry on. Right. So basically, the deep water horizon was impressive. Even if those the, the aforementioned are not true. She was still very impressive. April 19th, 2010, Jimmy Harold, the OIM, which is the offshore installation manager, the most senior manager on offshore platform, he met with a crew that had been running a long string of casing down into the hole. So the cement job was the last big task before they sealed off the bottom of the well. They were this close. Like, they were so close to almost being done with this. 
done with Makondo, the well from hell, you know, just finishing up. That's what's crazy about this story. But, I mean, that's one of the things. So, Ronald Sapavado, senior BP man, he was called off the rig for a training on shore. And he was replaced with Bob Kaluza. Bob Kaluza was sent to the Deepwater Horizon from Thunder Horse PDQ, which was BP's biggest asset. Um, Thunder Horse is, um, it was BP and ExxonMobil's joint venture. It's a semi-submersible oil platform on the location on the Mississippi River Canyon. And it is um, 150 miles from New Orleans, southeast of New Orleans. And it, the PDQ identifies the platform as being a production and oil drilling facility with crew quarters. Just FYI. Um, Kaluza had 35 years experience in the oil field, and he, but he wasn't familiar with Transocean's culture or working with equipment on Deepwater Horizon or even used to how they handled operations on an asset not owned by BP. But um, he was the one who outlined the plan for the cement job for the Horizon's crew. So Jimmy Harrell had over 30 years experience and he was the um he, he was the boss. He was the senior drilling hand um born in Mississippi. And Calusa's plan including running nitrogen foam cement for the cement job. Jimmy objected and he told Calusa that he was familiar with nitrified cement that they had used it at the top of the well where it was muddy at the seafloor. Uh, but in his 30-plus years, he had only seen it used at the deep part of the well twice. So he went on to say that when it's used very deep, and, and this was going down three miles, that the pressure squeezes the nitrogen bubbles out of the cement, and the nitrogen rises up through the well, creating tiny holes and channels that would be pointless as a seal. Jimmy didn't know about the test that Halliburton was running on the cement slurry. The mix had actually failed to prove stable. And Calusa didn't give in to Jimmy's objections. He believed that the lighter cement would be less likely to break through the well's fragile walls. So this is a classic case, sounds like to me, that you've got company man versus like boots on the ground, worked his way up, like, you know, these situations where it's like, looks good on paper, it's like, Real world application, you know, and you button heads. Yeah, and, and and unfortunately in those cases, most of the time the um the uh looks good on paper is gonna trump the real world application, unfortunately. And just I mean, I don't wanna, you know, constantly compare it, but just for reference, like for anybody that has seen the movie, Jimmy was uh, Kurt Russell's character. Yeah, right. So, Kaluza was the company man. He worked for BP. They wrote the checks. So, they started the cement job on April 19th, and they had to pump clean well fluid down the hole to push the mud out of the top, and that's called a bottoms up. Man, I have learned so much. <laughs> this <thing>. Yeah. <laughs> Too bad we're getting out of the oil. <laughs> <laughs> apply for a job look i know what a bottoms up is yeah okay um. <laughs> so, bp elected not to do a bottoms up they thought this would damage the fragile walls so they reduced the pressure of pumping if they did a bottoms up with the reduced pressure this would take hours and hours of rig time so 
cutting corners again. Good, good, good job. Skip a step. Yeah, exactly. They circulated only 342 barrels of mud. This is about one half the amount needed to act, to do an actual bottoms up. Halliburton, um, they were the contractor, and they actually pumped in the cement. This was at best a half-ass job, like to just clean it up before adding the cement. Yeah, like you said, skip a step. Here we go. Starting off great. Well, they already started off. Great, you're already on the well from hell. Why not? Let's just let's just skip all these steps. So when all the cement was in place, they checked the return in the mud pits. They calculated the, the mud that was displaced. And this matched the cement. This was called a return. So it, what you want to, and that's actually what you want to see. You want to see the mud that's going in replaced by the cement, um, being displaced so basically it equals out it's equal pressure but this didn't mean that the cement actually adhered the only way to know for sure was to let schlumberger crew on the rig do a cement bond log test and it's been over 10 years now if you've seen the movie you know that didn't happen so but actually to do a bond log test that you would need to, they would need to do a thermal and sonic measurement. This would create a 360-degree image, and it would show any voids of the cement that, that didn't actually get filled in. And the last thing you want to do is create these gaps or channels or fissures. You know, you want a good seal on this. So um, BP engineers on the rig and on the beach is what they called Houston headquarters. I thought that was pretty cute. On the beach, yeah, yeah, the beach. They declared that the cement job was a success because of the full returns. So the Slumberjay crew was sent home the next morning without conducting a cement bond log test. Saved BP a whopping $118,000. Oh, wow. But plus the one-half million dollars and what it would cost to run the test. About half a day. So what, like we're looking at like $618,000. Woo. Good job. Good job, BP. Um, They're just grasping, trying to save it, any, save pennies, essentially. Right, because also, we haven't even mentioned this, we'll get to a little bit more later, but this, they actually were receiving an award this very day that they were doing the cement job that for no major accidents or incidents in seven years. So, I'll try to put myself in that mind frame. Maybe they just got a little too comfortable, maybe. They were like, oh, you know, we're, we're at the end. We're trying to finish up. We're way over budget. Um, we haven't had anything happen in seven years. We're actually going to get an award. You know, we're home free. We, we've got this, maybe. Well, I think you hit it on the head with, you know, comfortable, but also overly confident that all of the right decisions were being made. Um, And maybe that's because of their prior success and how they came to be, you know, presented with this award. But, you know, we're going to. Yeah, it will go further. Yeah, right. Uh, Yeah, that's a good point. So, Schlumberger, they're the world's largest oil field services company. So, there's, and then, okay, well, I guess maybe I should stop real quick because if you're keeping up, TransOcean owns the Deepwater Horizon. 
And BP is leased the rights to the well to do this exploratory drilling. And then you have Halliburton who are running, who are contractors running tests and same thing for Schlumberger. So that's, um, they, they, Schlumberger does the main um, service. They do real-time data logging on oil well boreholes. And they also do well cement certification and well drilling management. Basically the end of life services to cap the well, which is what they were, they were doing. But also, days earlier, a nitrogen foam cement test had been um, conducted in a lab. This was to determine how long it would take under the same temperature and pressure at the bottom of the well for it to reach maximum hardness. And so they tested after 24 hours of the foam cement, it still hadn't set. It would need another, it would need 48 hours total to reach maximum hardness. Not even 11 hours after pumping the cement into the well, BP ordered a positive pressure test to determine the integrity of the long string casing. Mm. Wow. Right. You didn't even wait the 24 hours, but it really needed 48. Okay. I know we can sit here and um, armchair quarterback. Right, but I mean, it is exasperating to hear. I mean, yeah, it is. It's rough. So you just like every step of the way, you're like, wow, they did. Yeah. Anyway, so we won't go down to that. So they closed off the well at the the BOP and pumped the mud down the kill line, and this skirts around the annular preventer. This can increase the pressure at the bottom of the well, even when the annular is closed. They kept pumping until 25 pounds per square inch of pressure built up inside the cement casing. They held this pressure at a level for 30 minutes. If this didn't hold the pressure, that would mean that there were leaks. But it did. It held steady for 30 minutes, and then the test was considered a success. So the positive test that was conducted, um, this was conducted when the cement was not fully hardened. And when applying pressure to casing, this makes the steel expand. What that does is that can break the bond between the cement and the steel, creating gaps that the gas can escape to while rising to the surface. So the cement job and testing continued through the night and into the morning. So April 20th, 2010, the, um, the next day, the horizon had kept, accidents to a minimum and then on the on this day four vips from transocean and bp were flying in to deliver an award for the horizon for control time lost accidents or incidents no lost time incidents for seven years because lost time equals lost money right and that's what we were talking about earlier you know that's what i really think i think they were they were wrapped up in this is a big deal we're getting this big award it's been 7 years we haven't had any of these major incidents we're great we ran this test it held you know that's you know we're good we're about to go on that's the that's the thing i think they were thinking money you know this is money time is money and then also I would point out that not is this what these weren't just decisions made on the rig they were made um, in Houston too, like they said at, at the beach. You know, they were engineers People that were 
far removed from right. the actual floor. Exactly. So there was that as well. Um, uh, this was the day that they were going to begin closing up the well until a production platform could be come in and it be installed above it. So they just plugged it with cement at the bottom. Um, the next thing that they had to do was plug it with cement at the top. So federal regulations require top plugs be installed no more than 1,000 feet below the seafloor. BP received an approval to put Macondo's top plug deeper at 3,300 feet plus below the mudline. So they claim they didn't want to disturb the area around the wellhead seal, but all the mud above this top plug could be collected to a workboat and be transported to another BP project. So not only are they, like, trying to cut corners and, and you know, save money, of course, they're, you know, behind schedule and, and over budget, but they're like, hey, we can pump out all this mud because we got permission to drill deeper and pump out this mud, and we'll just use this mud on our other project. Right, so we can overperform on another. Right, right. But, you know, from a business perspective, okay, I mean, I I can see that as well. So Um, the positive test that was run earlier that morning pressure was measured to see if anything leaked out. The next thing you have to do is a negative test. This is to see if anything leaks in. So Calusa wanted to skip the negative test because he said they passed the positive test. And the negativeness would just be overkill. So, but Jimmy insisted on running a negative test. He had given in on the the nitrogen foam, but he, on his rig, they were going to do a negative test. Yeah. And if, and that's a, that's a part, they also capture this in the movie as well, if you see that, if you've seen that, so... So the VIPs arrived on the rig. Don's Win- Don Winslow and Buddy Trahan, senior executives from TransOcean, along with their BP counterparts, David Sims and Pat O'Brien. So the mud was offloaded onto the Damon Bankston. This was tied up to the side of the rig. So they closed the BOP annular preventer. If the cement job is sealed properly, the pressure should be zero. That's not what happened. So the pressure declined. The mud level dropped 50 barrels, which should never have happened. This meant that the annular preventer had leaked. The test was no good. It And to be to repeat it, you'd have to start all over. Do you think they did that? No. So why would they do Not. that? <laughs> so while they were discussing the discrepancy in the testing, they, they, they experienced a sudden pressure spike. Meanwhile, as they discussed what to do next, Jimmy... And Ezel were escorting the VIPs around the rig. So they debated for over an hour. And some thought that the pressure readings were a problem in the well. Calusa thought otherwise. He thought the pressure spike was caused by the weight of the mud dropping back down into the test area. This went on until the night crew came on shift. And the night crew decided to conduct a second negative test. Okay, so that's good. That was, that's good, good, good decision. But the results were odd. The pressure pressure rose and fell again. And remember, they should have started over completely. Well, they right, didn't. But did not. They didn't. So what they decided to do was use the kill line instead of the main line. They applied pressure, and it read zero, and it held for 30 minutes. And then they declared the negative test a success. So, yeah. <laughs> so when the kill line fell to zero and held there... This didn't say anything for the integrity of the well. It could have meant it was clogged. But 
they proceeded to close the well. And the award ceremony, meanwhile, was underway. This was, you know, below the deck for Horizon's uh, safe operation. Um, so let's talk about the, we talked about the BOP. Let's talk about the EDS, which is the emergency disconnect yeah. system. Whew. Yeah. So this is, this is a last resort option. This would activate the blind ran shears on the BOP, the blowout preventer. These were the pinchers that I talked about earlier. They would slice mm-hmm. through their well shaft and seal the well. Um, it disconnects the upper half of the VOP stack from the lower half, and then the rig can be free to move away from the well. So when you, when I say last resort, like to do this, like this would take, like it would take weeks to months to recover from an EDS. So they don't, they don't willy nilly push the EDS button. Right? No. I mean, (laughs) in fact, only certain people are authorized. Exactly. To call for an EDS. Um, so, worst case, if you did this, you'd have to abandon abandon the well. Like, it was a no going back option. It's, it's the literal last resort. Literal. Right. Which, the, you know, of course, you can understand why they have this. Like, this is because yes. you've got stuff coming. Like, you're sticking a steel straw. You're sticking a Yeti straw into... I don't, I don't even know, like, a, a, an orange that you would just squeeze from, like, you know, and then just come out, like, you, yeah. So, I mean, that's a, that's a really good analogy. I, yeah, I guess. That was just kind of off the cuff. But you think about that, and then you've got to counter the, you got to cover it. you got to have something to cover it, stop the, you know, all that flow coming up. So, there was a hissing noise, a thump, and then a beeping. Alarms started going off over each other the gas was coming this entered the well and it was rising up and expanding pushing up mud and seawater randy easel got a call from the assistant drilling driller steve curtis telling him that the well was blown out mm. yeah all when landry is the captain of the bankston that was tied to the rig he saw the mud coming from the rig and he looked out and saw dark liquid that he described as black rain shooting out and spraying onto oh. his deck yeah um he was only 40 feet away and he's he had the hose on his ship that was taken in the mud this hose required a crane to lift yep he, so he looks back and he actually describes seeing a green flash. At this time, multiple gas sensors were triggered. The most dangerous alarms were going off. So many lights and so many flashing. The rig floor was called inside the bridge and they said they were fighting a kick from the well. So then mud came out of the degasser. The, the degasser routed the mud if it was saturated with methane in the well. Um, but this kick was way too powerful. The the degasser failed. So there was a, an intense explosion and flames burst out. They called the rig floor and no one answered. Andrea Fletas, one of the bridge officers, she hit the general alarm and the um, the drill floor at that point, which is engulfed in flames. Yeah, oh God. Yeah. Um, all comms were damaged. Engines were gone. They were on a dead ship with a blown out well. Oh. Deck was just covered in mud. It was slippery. It was chaos. People were screaming. They were yelling. They were yelling, and we have to get off the rig. 
Then the crew members were getting um, into the lifeboats. Um, the BOP should have severed into two parts, cutting off the gas and disconnect from the well. Um, but why hadn't anybody pushed the EDS? Chris Pleasant, subsea supervisor, was offer, authorized to EDS, and he headed for the bridge to the BOP control panel. And Kurt Kutcha, he was the 34-year-old captain, he stepped in front of him and he told him to calm down. They weren't hitting the EDS. So, it was just chaos. Like I said, this was just chaos because the, it was just like the left hand didn't know what the right, well, they didn't know what was going on at that point. Then you like, have, you add in, you know, the shock and right fear and all, well, all of the emotions, all of them. Sure, because they, they had discrepancies in the testing and then the lights and things were failing that, but they were given a, the false positives, really. That's how they failed. So, you know, there was, you know, the, the captain who was like, we're not doing the EDS. Why? Because, you know, all lights indicate this. But yet, they like, they know that they were having a kick, that they were trying to fight. So, Don Vadreen, company man from BP, he saw the indicator lights and they said that they had the well shut in, as in under control. The lights indicated that the lower annual was closed, but clearly it had failed. The rubber seal was not powerful enough for a full blowout. Chris knew that the shear ram was the only thing to do. This was the most powerful intervention of the BOP. The shears would cut through the drill pipe, detach the BOP, seal the well, and free the well. He hit the button, and the light indicated uh, that it, it had engaged. But then he noticed that the gauges read zero. The hydraulics that were supposed to enable the shears were dead. Mm. Yeah. Don Winslow, TransOcean's performance manager, he ran into the bridge, and he was he was the highest-ranking company employee on the rig, and they asked him if they get EDS, and he was like, you haven't already? Oh, my God. Right. Well, chaos. Like I said, this is just, like, madness. So they tried to start the backup generator, and nothing happened. By this time, the rig was engulfed in flames, and small explosions were going off everywhere. The fire was just just growing, and the rig was coming apart. Crew members started jumping off the rig because they were surrounded by fire. It, the water, the water was on fire because that's where right. the oil and the gas was. Um, uh, this, this is um, it's a literal series of it's a literal yeah series of like. system failure after system failure after and then finally when you know even the generator i think it was an issue of it had not been um charged or something yeah it was dead the battery had a dead battery yeah that's right yes um they said that no one on the drill floor could have survived they were all gone no Mm -mm. Um, others were piling into fiberglass boats. Um, they were piling in on top of each other just to make room for the injured. Half of the lifeboats were engulfed in flames too. So, so when the workers, they finally, so what they were doing, so getting on the lifeboats and they were, luckily the Bankston was just, um, 40 feet away. It was right there. So they were swimming too. And they were, you know, coming up in the lifeboats. They got on the Bankston and they were on the deck of the Bankston. And, um, then they were. They were sent to, you would think that they would just try to get them off, 
get them help and and um get them straight back to shore well they right yes and see their families and just get medical attention but they um they sent them to an unused offshore rig where Mm -hmm. where they were told to take drug tests and sign documents hours i think they were on there like 24 hours before they even went to shore in port fochon louisiana yeah documents stating that they had no knowledge of Mm. um i don't remember what the exact verbiage was but um that they had no knowledge of any problems on the rig and that they would not um (laughs) take any legal action against the company yeah wow you know so you have a group of people that are um have been traumatized they're delirious they're you know in no condition to consent to any type of documentation at all no not at all and some of them didn't sign um but they i think that i think you're right i think they took advantage of um the employees being in a chaotic and injured and just just delirium state yeah. of mind. Yeah. So in the aftermath, more than 200 million gallons of crude oil was pumped into the Gulf of Mexico for a total of 87 days, making it the biggest oil spill in U.S. history. Um, 20 years earlier, the Exxon Valdez oil tanker that's the one that ran a, aground on a reef in Alaska's Prince William Sound. That dumped only 11 million gallons of oil in the ocean. Only. Well, comparatively, right. you know. Right. So 16,000 total miles of co- coastline have been affected. This is um, the coast of Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Florida. Responders used 5.5 feet of boom and barrier placed in the water to collect and absorb the oil. I remember seeing this. This was fascinating. They tr- they threw everything but the kitchen sink at this. They tried everything. Of course, they're like trying to get this to stop. 87 days, that was a long time. It was just painfully slow watching this on the news 24-7. Trial and error. Right. So of the 400 miles of Louisiana coast, approximately 125 miles um were polluted by the oil spill. Everybody was scared of this. I remember, you know, no one wanted to eat any of the seafood, of course not, you know, um, you know, oysters. The images of the um, wildlife yeah. and the marine life is, yeah. it was just horrible. It was. It was so sad because that was another thing when the buzz around town was, Oh, it's just a hydrocarbon. It's natural. It's a hydrocarbon. Yes, it is a hydrocarbon. You're right. But it's a lot of hydrocarbons in the in the ocean where the uh, oceanic life lives. They're not used to, like, swimming around in oil and muck and all this. No, that's, you know, it needs to be where it was. So... Over 8,000 animals, birds, turtles, mammals, they were reported dead six months after the spill. Mm. This included many that were already on the endangered species list. Um, BP is responsible for close to $40 billion in fines, cleanup costs, and settlements as a result of the oil spill, and an additional $16 billion due to the Clean Water Act. 
Over 30,000 people responded to those spill in the Gulf Coast, working to collect the oil, clean up the beaches, take care of the animals, perform various other duties. I know you just remember those images. Of, yeah. oh, no. the Jill, you'll never forget. No, of them taking the little the birds and the and the turtles and stuff, trying to clean them off. And Dawn, they probably used a ton of Dawn. I remember the <laughs> pelicans in particular. It was just, oh, so traumatic watching that. Absolutely. The slit created before the well was finally closed. This extended over more than 50,500 square miles of the Gulf of Mexico. That's unfathomable to me like I can't even I don't can't picture in my mind how many square miles 57500 is I just can't Mm-mm, I can't either so the spill affected many of the industries upon which the regis- the residents depended um, more than a third of the federal waters in the Gulf were closed this is um, fishing um because people were worried about contamination. Like I said, I remember that. I like my raw oysters, and I couldn't eat raw oysters for a long time. Probably still shouldn't, but... Um, there was a moratorium of on offshore drilling enacted by U.S. President Barack Obama at the time. Um, this was despite a district court reversal that left an estimated 8,000 to 12,000 temporary unemployed. I remember that being a really big deal. But looking back yeah. now... Of course, like that, I really think that was the right thing to do at the time, at least. I think so, because, you know, that was the other thing, aside from the animal and marine life, you know, there were the images of the, the average person just trying to, you know, cling to their livelihood, and it was, it was, it was gone. Right. Absolutely. community and those fishing communities that's how people make their living oh yeah definitely um and then not only that though but that was the tourism you know it's it's not really a super huge in louisiana anyway but but to florida alabama and mississippi they certainly have uh, a pretty strong tourism on that along their coastline um but i mean we do have like grand isle a lot of people to go down there but you know it's there and they struggled so um obama uh, created the 20 billion compensation fund for those affected um a year later nearly a third of the fund had been paid out this is through lack of oversight allowed the government entities to submit wildly inflated claims and some unrelated to the spill. Of course, this happens all the time in, in the state and it just burns me up. But by 2013, the fund was largely depleted. Oh, $20 billion. Of course, you know, they're going to have people take advantage of, of, um, of a situation. Uh, so the charges against the individuals... In April of 2012, the first criminal charges to come out of the disaster were filed against a former senior drilling engineer for BP, Kurt Mix. He worked for BP until January 2012. Um, He was charged in federal court with obstructing justice for deleting hundreds of text messages concerning the rate flow of oil, um, despite having received legal notification to preserve the correspondence. They forensically recovered his messages. Um, one contained a flow rate estimate three times higher than what BP had publicly attested to at the time. 
and he was convicted in 2013. In November 2012, two senior officers on the Deepwater Horizon oil rig, Robert Calusa and Don, Donald Vadreen, they were charged with manslaughter. David Rainey, the former vice president for exploration in the Gulf of Mexico, was charged with obstructing Congress and making false statements to law enforcement concerning the rate at which the oil was leaking from the rig. So, none of the individuals who were charged with criminal offenses related to this bill received prison sentences. Um, Rainey was acquitted in June 2015. Mix was granted a retrial. He was sentenced to probation and community service in November 2015. Nice. Yeah. The manslaughter charges against Calusa and Vadreen were dropped in December 2015 at the request of prosecution. Um, Vadreen pled guilty to a misdemeanor charge of pollution under the Clean Water Act and in April 2016 was sentenced to probation, community service, and payment of a fine. And Calusa pled not guilty to the same charge and was cleared in February 2016. I'm not so upset with them, maybe because I don't really know the details. I do feel like they were hung out to dry. I feel like they are yes, the low-hanging fruit. Yeah. So I feel like they, because. Somebody had to pay for it. Right. And so the people, they were also getting, um, they were getting, con- you know, consultation from. And advice from people in Houston on the beach. So scapegoats. They were the scapegoats. Yeah, that's exactly right. So there was a civil trial of BP Halliburton and TransOcean. And this was in February 2013 in New Orleans. The federal government, as well as individual states and entities, they were among the plaintiffs. BP was found to be 67% culpable for the spill and grossly negligent. TransOcean was only held 30% liable and Halliburton 3% liable. And um, they were both, both of those were deemed negligent as well. In January 2013, TransOcean agreed to pay a $1 billion civil penalty under the Clean Water Act. Approximately $800 million of that was earmarked for the restoration projects in the Gulf, and the remainder was paid to the federal government. And in July 2013, Halliburton agreed to pay a $200,000 penalty after pleading guilty to criminal charges that its employees had destroyed evidence related to this bill. It settled claims with the plaintiff's steering committee for some $1.1 billion in September 2014. And then in November 2012, BP reached an agreement with the DOJ to plead guilty to 14 criminal charges, among them 11 counts of felony manslaughter and violations of the Clean Water and Migratory Bird Treaty Acts. The agreement carried penalties and fines amounting to more than $4.5 billion, of which nearly $1.26 billion would go to discretionary fund overseen by the DOJ, some $2.4 billion to the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation. So those guys got paid, got paid some, you know, money for that because they actually were the ones doing all the cleanup and the ones who suffered the damages as well. I mean, you can't, certainly can't put any money on the 11 that men that died or on the animals that died as well, so. No, it's just the disparity between, you know, the, the 11 that perished were 
most if not all of them were the workers yeah the, the blue collar workers i think a couple were um engineer that type level but you know just knowing that the ones that did lose their lives were your average ordinary everyday american and this is how they earn their livelihood uh going into these situations which obviously they're well trained and they're well prepared as they can be and they know the risks going into it i think it's just that it's when you look at the disparity between the the multi-millions and billions of dollars that these companies make and then you just think about you know their lives in terms of ordinary it's 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 very hard to um reconcile all of that and so while I do agree that, uh, you know, like who am I to say justice was served in the way that it yeah. should have been? I just, you know, I just think of the profound loss of their families, yeah. um, their spouses, their children, their friends. You know, I just, it's, it's just, it's, it, it's uncomfortable. Yeah, you're right. And also, you said something, yeah, they are well trained. I think there is a certain level of trust that they had and they put into their their supervisors. Yeah, that they're going to take care of them, too. Or that they trust that they will make the right decisions that, on the yeah, top, too. Essentially, that, I guess that's what I mean, but you're right. Yeah, but that was well said. Um, I did want to point out that, especially coming off your your um your words bp chief executive tony hayward he was the public face of bp and he inflamed the public with his remark and he i'd just like to get my life back oh yeah oh, okay because mm. you'd like to get That's your life back okay. okay wow yeah yeah you weren't even yeah tony hayward you weren't even on that rig and there are 11 men that will never get their lives back Nay, did you lose your life? What do you mean, get it back? Okay, that, yeah. Yeah, so I just want to point that out. Also, just want to mention, too, he just wasn't in any um, any of my narrative, but um, survivor Mike Williams, who was the chief electronics technician on the rig, um, he was portrayed. That's Mark Walmart. That's right. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's right. Um, and he was a hero of Deepwater Horizon, so he just didn't actually come up in my notes, but I did want to point that out. Because he is a real person. Yeah, I'm glad yeah. you did. Because <laughs> I think he did a really good job in that film. I really do. Yeah. Granted, I know it's Hollywood's portrayal of this, but I think he did a really good job. Yeah, he's really good at those disaster films. Mark Wahlberg, that is, yes. Um. So... The a study was published in the journal Nature in 2020, so just a year ago, found that fish in the Gulf of the Mexi- Gulf of Mexico continued to show evidence of contamination by polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. I don't even know what that means. It sounds terrible. It sounds like something. Yeah, and it also eat. sounds like it it, it it's unavoidable. At, just just due to the 
sheer volume of the spillage. You know, it just. Yeah. I can't see how that that wouldn't be the case. Right. So just eat gulf fish at your own risk, I guess. She should do that anyway, but it's good. It's so good. Um, we would be remiss if we did not honor those who lost their lives. I agree. Jason C. Anderson was 35 at the time from Midfield, Texas. On April 20th, Anderson was wrapping up his last ever shift on the Deepwater Horizon since he had taken a new job as a senior tool pusher on the Discovery Spirit. He cleaned out his locker and would have left the rig on the first helicopter out on the morning of April 21st. In his last phone call to his wife, he said that he was glad he had the chance to see his rig brothers one last time. Aaron Dale Burking was 37. He was from Philadelphia, Mississippi. He was married to Rhonda Burking. April 20th was their eighth anniversary. Donald Clark, he was 49, from Newellton, Louisiana. Friends said Clark had only two hours left on his shift and he was due to return home April 21st. Stephen Ray Curtis was 39 from Georgetown, Louisiana, a U.S. Marine Corps veteran. Roy Wyatt Kemp, 27, from Jonesville, Louisiana. He left behind a three-year-old and a three-month-old at the time. Carl Dale Keplinger Jr. was 38 from Natchez, Mississippi. He was born in Baton Rouge. Um, Keplinger was a U.S. Army veteran of Operation Desert Storm. Gordon Lewis Jones was 28 from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. On April 20th, Jones got off the phone with his wife just 10 minutes before the explosion. He was the glue that bound the family together. Michelle Jones said he died three days before their sixth anniversary. Keith Blair Manuel, 56, from Gonzales, Louisiana. He was a negative of Eunice, Louisiana, and he was an avid hunter and had season tickets to Louisiana State University baseball and football games. Dewey A. Rivette was 48 from State Line, Mississippi. When a CNN reporter visited Sherry Rivette in early July, her husband's overalls were still hanging in an unfinished sunroom, and his leather red wing boots sat next to the door. Shane M. Rocheteau is 22 from Liberty, Mississippi. He left behind a son of three years at the time. Adam Weiss, he was 24 from Yorktown, Texas. He drove 10 hours to or from Louisiana every three weeks to work on the rig. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next time.
You've been listening to Southern Discomfort with April and Christine. As you can tell, this is one of the most unique podcasts on the internet. So we want you to be able to reach out to us. Send emails to Southern Discomfort Podcast at gmail.com. On Facebook, at Southern Discomfort Podcast. And on Instagram, at Southern Discomfort PC. And for shows, visit southerndiscomfort.podbean.com. And this podcast can be found anywhere you get your podcasts. Till next time, keep one eye open because you never know what you might see. This is Southern Discomfort. Signing off.